1: a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. You may not know the name Chris Dorsey. Chris Dorsey has been in the outdoor media space for over 30 years. He's probably produced the most content of anyone in both the outdoor media space, as well as the mainstream space when it comes to outdoors and hunting-related media. This podcast dives immediately into the issues around hunting, perceptions around hunting, and where do we go from here? Hang on to your seats, because it's a fast-paced discussion. Now we're rolling. Okay. Chris Dorsey. See, and and this is what's funny. I never introduce individuals right off the gate, but I felt like I needed to introduce you right off the gate. So Chris Dorsey, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast and the three people that are going to listen to this.
2: (laughs) A big family. It's going to be at least 12.
1: Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, you need to do all the sharing possible. We need those numbers to ramp up, okay? You got so, it. Chris, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to those that uh, aren't familiar with who you are?
2: Yeah, well, look, uh, let's see. I've been doing outdoor television now for about 21 years. We've produced about 56 series now, I guess, in the outdoor space. Um, so, the largest outdoor television producer in history. We've got about 150,000 hours of HD content from all over the world. Previous to that, I used to run magazines. I ran Ducks Unlimited Magazine, ran Sports Field Magazine out of Los Angeles. And uh, now we do a lot of mainstream cable programming, got a big series coming to ABC. Um, So we're kind of involved in a lot of mainstream television. We've done a lot of stuff on Discovery, History, Nat Geo, uh, Animal Planet, et cetera. But a lot of the stuff that we do really does have a lot of context in the outdoor space. So when we do the, the Kodiak series on Discovery, which was about you know, the bear hunting guides on Kodiak Island, the whole situation with the bears, you know, the, the bears are tremendously populated. Some would say maybe overpopulated, um, but they're, they're that way, not in spite of hunting, but because of hunting. Hunting has really created the, the, the biological phenomenon that's produced so many bears. And, and so anyway, I'm a biologist by background, and, uh, and I've got an English degree, so what the hell do you do with that, I guess, other than create television and some kind of media?
1: Well, my wife has a PhD in 18th century Gothic literature. <laughs> and so she says, if you ever turn up dead, Robbie, all they have to do is look <laughs> at my Google history and they'll like, see I'm trying to kill people 25 different ways. Um, <laughs> but you know, she corrects me on my English all the time. So let me, yeah. let me dive right in. I would say that you are probably one of the foremost, I don't know if expert is the right term here, but you're probably one of the foremost individuals that has a very good finger on the pulse of outdoor media content. Would that be a fair statement?
2: Yeah, I think so. I've I've been, uh, I've got the scars to prove it, I guess. And, and, uh, And because I danced between mainstream television and media, and the outdoor space, I'm, I'm this sort of floating vagabond that, that uh, you know, again, when I deal with networks on the left and right coasts, um, they tend not to like our lifestyle, they tend not to embrace it. And uh, so it, it presents an interesting interesting sort of place for me because we, on one hand, depend on them for our business. On the other hand, I'm really wed to the category that I love and that I grew up in, and that's the outdoors.
1: Okay so why then is one of the most popular shows out there right now or or maybe not the show but the genre of shows are these survival out there type shows that show hunting all the time yet they're super popular with mainstream mm-hmm. traditional hunting shows are sh- as you've just said, are looked down upon saying, no, nah, we're not interested in that. It seems like a massive it's like it's staring us in the face. Your discovery, you are airing hunting all the time. Nash, not not Geo, but A and E, history. You're you're showing hunting all the time, yet you never ever hear people say, We're against that because it's hunting.
2: Yeah, here's the definition, of, here's the here's the fine line that's walked and why, why typically, you know, you can have subsistence hunting, you can have indigenous hunting. Um, I mean, hell, even in Life Below Zero, one of my favorite series. I love that series. Exactly. And, and that's the National Geographic. That's the gold box, right? And I said this in a, in a network meeting maybe two or three months ago, but, but one of the folks on that show had shot a wolf They came back to a caribou kill and, uh, and ended up shooting a wolf this guy was i believe he was a he was a a white alaskan married to an indigenous woman and yet lived in a basically an indigenous village and once you put hunting into the right context which is i think what you're getting at once you once you put hunting in a context where it's explainable and makes sense whether it's elephant hunting in botswana or it's possibly shooting a wolf in alaska once you put the context to the experience then people tend to at least listen you know if, if it's simply i came i saw and i conquered i want to shoot a you know an 80 pound tusker in botswana and i want to put it in my trophy room etc you know lights are out you know you've lost that audience at that point but what what is particularly interesting about those shows and there's several as you say there's discovery there's you know we've done it you know even in the kodiak series on on discovery they were hunting deer for for camp meat and things like that really no blowback. there was a little bit of a little bit of noise about the the bear hunting itself but if you explain the whole situation right if you if you don't just say we're coming here to kill an animal for a trophy whatever that means um but you explain the context of populations population dynamics you know the and, and how habitat can support a certain defined amount of of uh, charismatic megafauna, in the case of brown bears, um, and and you put that all into context in terms of sustainable activity, in terms of what it's doing for the rest of the animals and critters on that uh, on that island. Um, then there just tends to be much more acceptance. But but you know we saw that early on. Obviously, it you know we we were I think the first television production company in the United States to really do a Dangerous Game hunting series which included elephants, lions, and leopards, and, and all the big five. What deserts. series was that, Chris? Uh, it was called Dangerous, Dangerous Game. It ran for, I think, 12 seasons okay. on boards, moved outdoor channel. And that was on air like 10 years ago. So it was like 20 years ago that we started that series. So that goes back. That's, that's fairly early in the game relative to cable programming in the outdoor space. And I'll, I'll never forget the conversation we had with the network executive who was in Connecticut at the time, and he just said, "Man, I don't know. I, I think ad sales is going to go crazy, and, and we're going to lose advertisers if they see an elephant." And I said, "Well, look, I think we can do a pretty good job explaining the why and and the rationale for why hunting can can make a difference." And I got into the whole this was a this was a, a two bourbon three hour conversation, <laughs> well into after the dinner hour, and uh, finally convinced them that okay we'll give you a shot, we'll do one show, let's just see what happens. And we, you know, we spent a lot of time really talking about the poaching issue, what happened in Kenya, relative to Richard Leakey closing down elephant hunting, and of course, yep. you know, the poachers moved in in mass and wiped them out, and just really all the analytics behind it, right? I mean, the thing of it is, we have the great narrative, we have the great story, but we're fairly ham-handed very often in how we, how we explain that story, how we well, tell why? that story.
1: why are we ham-handed, Chris? Like, we know the consequence of what we do. We yeah. know the consequence of our actions, yet we rarely pay attention to the consequence in outdoor media.
2: Yeah, you know, yes, we do. And, and I, think, I think there's so much access now to, for, for people who really maybe don't know, quite frankly. Um, they, they just don't have any experience. They're not communicators professionally they haven't they haven't gone through the ranks of of fielding letters from readers over periods of time where the readers say why don't you take your pen and shove it up your ass <laughs> you know I, I don't believe in what you're saying i think you're wrong and you're a moron and whatever and so you you fine tune your argument right over a period of time of going through that cauldron of give and take and and then then you're a little bit more qualified to reach the masses with a with a message that will impact the entire category. And what I see now is a lot of people that I think, frankly, are well-intentioned. They just come from a world where there are no anti-hunters. They don't ever have a negative comment about hunting. They don't experience that. They don't see it. You know, They're in wherever, rural, deep south, or in the west, or whatever. And I know a lot of those people. And number one, even if they're not exposed to them, they don't really give a damn what animal rights people think. Anyway, now what they're not processing is what they're doing will have implications to other people, and you want to be a little bit careful about that. And the unintended consequences of just saying "pound sand" I, I don't really give a damn what you think in a medium um, is a little bit risky. And there's do you there's we see. So I think that the the rhetoric that
1: is I don't give a damn is tied to ego?
2: I don't know if it's tied to ego. I think it's tied to partly the great divide and, and the chasm in the country. I mean, we are, we are whether we like it or not, we are, we are tectonically shifting into two countries. We're doing it economically. I don't know if you're tracking what's happening. I, just, I write a column for Forbes as well, and I, I cover a wide array of things, including hunting, including you know the outdoor category but also politics and and real estate and things like that and the movement in this country right now is absolutely historic people are fleeing red states red cities principally getting the hell out of new york getting out of la getting out of chicago hell they're getting out of denver i think, they're coming you, meant to blue. Denver.
1: I think you meant blue
2: I'm, I'm sorry yes they're getting out of blue states going to red states mm-hmm. and they're getting away from crime, they're getting away from that ideology. Now the question is, are they bringing the ideology with them to these other places? And, and I hope not, but I, I'm fearful of that. But I think there's this huge divide happening and, and people now are aligned on one side or the other. And I think they're just like, I really don't give a damn. I'm, I'm out of it. I am so ticked off, so frustrated um, at every level, politically, you know, through taxation, through through the, the COVID lockdowns and the, the dichotomy of what's happening in some cities versus other cities in different states. You know, you got wide open Texas, you got wide open Florida, and you got lockdown California. Well, guess what? People are getting the hell out. They have the choice mm-hmm. and they're getting out. And I think they just have had enough. I think there's a lot of people in this country, probably on both sides, but I know politically on the right for sure, because I, I circle in that that world a little bit more than I do the left. And I know people have just had it. So when they have a chance to say, go to hell, they're they're tending to do it. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that is a phenomenon that's happening right now. And we are shifting, really, I believe, fundamentally into two different countries. We're going to be two different economies, two different political structures. You're going to have states that are going to be completely pro-business, capitalistic, et cetera. You're going to have other states right now that are, are shifting into socialism and and all that comes with that so that's a roundabout saying i think we're in just a kind of a unique place right now maybe it's ego in some cases i don't know i mean i I just think it's more frustration than it is that
1: but shouldn't you know hunting is not red hunting's not blue you know hunters are across the spectrum so it's almost like unfortunate that hunting has been labeled as this divide right that hunting has been labeled this almost republican red type activity when in fact it's not true at all that you have hunting and hunters occur across the spectrum of race of ethnicity of political affiliation
2: you yeah. name it yeah well i sit on the board of the congressional sportsmen's foundation and the last data i saw was that about 80% of the hunters in America identify as Republicans. So it's, it's certainly across the spectrum, no doubt about it. And I think when you look at the, you know, you look at uh, the uh, backcountry hunters and anglers group, for instance, I, I think we're seeing more and more sort of left leaning tendencies out of that group. And you might've seen this week kind of the big blow up between hunter nation and, uh, and backcountry backcountry hunters and anglers, over this, uh, this business in Montana of whether or not the wounded vets could use a crossbow. Mm. And the backcountry hunters and anglers opposed that. Hunter Nation, you know, took them on head on and said, you know, Ted Nugent came on and said, you know, this is the Backstabbers and Anglers Association, not the, the backcountry hunters and anglers. So there is, there is actually a divide happening right now that I'm seeing in the sporting community, which is which is interesting to watch i've not i've never seen this it's been a pretty monolithic you know tended to be right of center republican kind of based group and uh, and typically you know when when the republican presidents made the rounds it was safari club it was ducks unlimited it was those groups it was the camo coalition not so much sierra and you know those organizations and uh but now i think you're seeing a bit of a divide it's it's interesting to watch because i think i think the gloves are are starting to come off on that and and uh we'll see we'll see where that goes well chris isn't
1: that just you know i know one of the things you talk about a lot is we get attacked constantly from the anti-hunting side of things okay yeah Aren't we doing it to ourselves if there is a divide already? That there are hunters against hunters. Backcountry hunters and anglers are hunters. They may have a different ideology than Hunter Nation, that are hunters, but they're hunters. Everyone is a hunter. And aren't we fighting? Why are we fighting amongst each other? Wherein the fight shouldn't be amongst each other but with the guys over there that said, we want to get rid of hunting.
2: Yeah. Well, look, I, I think if, if we were all coordinated, you would say, yeah, we wouldn't do that. Right. But we're, we're not fighting over whether or not there should be hunting. The, the debate that I'm seeing emerge between a couple of the hunting organizations and maybe more is really about, about public lands and public land access and, and who gets to do that and, and uh you know th- that's the sort of debate that's happening but it was it was just a, a bit surprising to me that backcountry country hunters and anglers chose this bill in montana mm-hmm. which seemed like I, I don't know how many wounded vets are hunting in montana with a crossbow mm-hmm. but i gotta believe it's not really impacting the population of deer and elk et cetera too much in the state of Montana. So it was an odd thing for me to watch. it. again, as a as somebody who's been in the category for a long time, kind of monitoring these things, been in leadership positions and conservation organizations, have have been employee. I was an employee of Ducks Unlimited for a decade of my life. So I, I've been I've been looking at this for a long time. It was just one of the first times I've ever seen a group kind of kind of go out of its way for very little gain, in my opinion. I mean you know okay i think the argument was you know the 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 bow hunting the the crossbow hunting was already addressed through some other other situations other laws in montana so we didn't really need to open this up to wounded vets but the optics of that were were pretty awful in my opinion i mean (laughs) we're talking about people that have sacrificed dearly for this country and if all all we're saying is you know, give them the chance to hunt with a crossbow for crying out loud, let them hunt with a crossbow. But yeah, in the broader context of the mainstream, number one, they don't really give a shit about this debate. That isn't they, they think we're both awful. They think backcountry hunters and anglers are awful. They think the safari club group is awful. So, you know, that's 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 a different debate than than whether or not you're gonna have division amongst the hunting groups themselves. But yeah, we do this all the time. We we do things that that don't make any sense to me where you just go, did anybody think about this before they did this? Or, or really, more importantly, we don't engage. You know, we, we have Cecil the lion happens, right? Right. Story in the, the hunting community in, in a, probably 20 years. And, uh, and what do we do? You know, where was the crisis management plan? Where was the leadership in the 100%. hunting? 100 You know, where, where were we with a camera ready speakers bureau know where cnn and fox news and abc news nbc news wall street journal washington post all the mainstream big players would have had us on speed dial and said oh we got a great debate raging right here at the end of the day i don't think they really care they want ratings they want to sell newspapers they want eyeballs to sell advertising and but they wanted a good debate but i remember watching cnn and they had found this taxidermist somewhere in the middle of california who (laughs) had You know god bless him i'm sure he's going what are these cameras doing in my taxidermy Mm -hmm. and they're asking him to defend all hunting vis-a-vis the the cecil alliance story and i'm thinking to myself oh my god you know how are we not ready for this and and i remember sitting in the the csf Congressional sportsman's foundation board meeting we were talking about this and this is comprised of the leadership of the industry right all the manufacturers several of the conservation organizations it's not a general board, it's an industry board. People that have a real vested interest in the success of our industry and all that good stuff. And just saying, you know, where are we guys on this? I mean, why don't we have a crisis plan? Why don't we have a proactive communication strategy? And that, that led into more and more dialogue. And, and I gave a, a speech in Nashville to the, the Outdoor Legends group, and I just said, you know, where's our Super Bowl at? You know, why aren't we? One hundred percent. Where's our billboards? Where are billboards outside of Los Angeles, outside of New York? Right. I said, look, we have this great narrative. We have a tremendous narrative. We are being we are allowing others to define us. Why are we not defining ourselves? Why Why are we not proactive, telling a positive story? We have a tremendous story to tell. Hit the mainstream, create a dialogue, create a debate. That's okay. And then and then let's go after it. Let's let's own it. Let's make sure people understand where we come from, what we've stood for, and what we've what we've done and achieved. Right. Instead, our our tendency as an industry is to go turtle. We Mm pull our head, our legs in, and we wait for the storm to pass. Well, what happened after Cecil? Yeah, we had airlines that wouldn't carry guns, we had airlines that wouldn't carry trophies back from Africa. We now have states that are banning ivory on on beads of rifles and piano keys, and, and now are doing state-by-state state anti-trophy stuff, and new a slew of new anti-hunting stuff is coming out of it. Because this narrative, this, this big story in the media, hundreds of millions of dollars of value to the animal rights organizations happened because of Cecil. Because mm-hmm. we, didn't, we didn't address it early on. We didn't tell the story of lions in Africa which is if there isn't value, that is no hunting in Africa of lions, guess what? They're relegated to the parks. They get outside of the parks, they're gonna be poisoned. They're snared, they're killed in mass. Why is that? Because they're killing people, they're killing cattle, and they're not bringing any value.
1: So that is our own demise. Our own demise is because we never thought about the consequence of hunting. We thought about self, we thought mm. about ego. We thought about this is me killing a lion and how good I look killing that lion.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think that was the story here, though. I mean, no, no, no. Opinion- I'm
1: not saying that's the story. I'm just saying, yeah. up until that point, yeah. you have to ask the question why? Why did people not understand all the things you just described?
2: Sure. Well, the reason again- being
1: is that nobody decided to talk about them because those stories are not self-centered. Those stories about our, are about our community, Chris. Yeah. They're not about an individual. And up until that point, and even today, outdoor media in our hunting space is typically about self
2: yeah sometimes it is sometimes it isn't I guess i mean I would look at it every time we did for instance a dangerous game episode mm-hmm. it was you know you were always explaining what's happening relative to even if we did a lion show here's here's the reality of lions in Africa here's what hunters are bringing to the equation you know here's what's happening in places where they don't have lion hunting here's the the poaching you know the slaughter that's happening the poisoning that's happening and and all that kind of stuff so we again it goes back to if you're going to cover this if you're going to talk about this know what the hell you're talking about and put that experience in context right and and i think i think we have a lot of people again i you know i don't want to you know blame social media in mass but but i see a lot of stuff on social media and i go you know that's something you should have emailed to your friends you should have just emailed to the 12 people who would have given a shit about the fact that you took that animal whatever but if you're not going to put it in context if you're not going to explain you know here's the story behind it here's here's the rationale behind it if you don't have any context to that you know i i think you're setting yourself up to a degree and it's not as if i haven't posted photos of animals either i have but i've tried to do it in the context of here's where we were here's what was unique about this experience here's what's unique about this animal and i do it in my writing I, i did a piece on on the uh, mountain in Yala in Ethiopia, right? This is an animal that I think there's 20, 25 mountain in Yala taken a year. Yep. That's it. That, that's it. Very small number. Obviously, a very expensive hunt. And that species in Ethiopia has largely been saved because of the Russos family, Nassos Russos, Jason Russos, uh, who really fought like hell to save that forest, the cloud forest above 10,000, 9,000 feet. Where these animals live, and they saved enough of that forest to keep these animals and that population intact. And uh, and they've got tremendous pressures, as you know, as an uh, as an African, you know, Ethiopia is a populated nation and they resources. They're in there. They're in the forest. They've negotiated a deal with the the local villages can come into the forest, collect dead wood, take it out, but they got to get out. They can't have a gun and all that kind of stuff. So it's this dance that they do every year, but as the population grows, it gets more and more challenging for them. Mm-hmm. But if not for hunters, if not for hunters dollars, that's a species that would have been gone years ago. Yep. And, and there's many of those stories. And and so we try and tell those stories. We were going to do a, a, a hunt for Mount Inyala, but it really became this this documentary about the cloud forest in this family. You know, this family that had really, it's their lives. I mean. Nassos put his ass on the line put his his financial future on the line and and fortunately came across dick cabela at the right time in his life where dick could say i think it's i think this is good i'll help you and uh you know and dick did an amazing thing and and dick was behind helping save that species as well well again nobody tells that story nobody knows that story so i did it in forbes we did it in television um you know and so we do what we can do
1: so let's, let's shift to the future. So let's shift to what do we need to do to ensure that, you know, I've got two boys, nine and seven. I want them to be raised as hunters. Um, you have grandkids, Chris?
2: No, I've got twin 16 year old boys. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Amazing. I'm glad I look old enough to be a granddad. but
1: <laughs> No, no, I, I'm just, you know, uh <laughs> I'm sure you're, 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 you're dealing with different struggles in the boy's life than I am dealing with at nine and seven. You know, we all, it, you feel like you get over a hurdle and then you hit the next hurdle, right?
2: Well, look, I, I think, you know, and, and we've spent a lot of time and I've, I've talked to teachers, I've talked to administrators about that. Again, there absolutely, in my opinion, is a cultural war around this lifestyle. There's no question about that. And, and I think when you live in rural America, small-town America, C and D market counties, you don't see that. But, but, but when you live in a suburban environment, a, an urban environment, or in my case, where you're dealing with urban media on the coast, you see it all, all the time. And, and if we don't find a way to push back on, on this lifestyle being perceived as, as toxic, perverse in the eyes of, of some, um, if we don't find a way to push back, we're gonna lose that. And and we already are. I mean, you're looking at hunter numbers declining. You want to see hunter numbers declining, go to Canada. You know, this is a this is a country that has tremendous public land access, crown land everywhere, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of ducks unlimited projects that anybody can hunt. Um, just tremendous access and only 35 million people in the entire country, right? So you've got you've got fish and wildlife and and open access all over that country, yet their numbers are plummeting. I mean, absolutely plummeting. And that isn't because of access. We used to, We used to say all the time, well, it's really about access. If you get somebody give somebody access to go hunting and fishing, they'll go hunting and fishing. Well, guess what? They won't go hunting and fishing unless it's of, it's of interest to them, It's hip and cool and it's fun and it's fresh, and it's interesting and it's redeeming and you could share it with your friends. And, and bring friends along, it's social. If you can't do that because too many people perceive your lifestyle as, as abhorrent, um, you got a problem. You got a recruitment problem. And, and I think that's when I look at the 3R program, recruitment, retention, or reactivation that is kind of sweeping the industry right now that, that uh, Pittman Robertson dollars are helping go into to help fund at the state level. I think it's a great idea. I think it needs to embrace the notion that we can't just ask somebody to go hunting. We've got to create an environment where they want to go hunting, where there's interest in going hunting. And the only way we can do that is if we defend ourselves and push back against the the cultural warriors who are against us. You know, the animal rights groups that are raising hundreds of millions of dollars a year that are really aided and abetted by mainstream media anyway, right? So, they have a multiplier effect because they have coastal media, giant coastal coastal media companies that are in the tank with them already. So we've got a, we've got a more uphill battle to fight. Having said that, there's still 60 million of us who hunt and fish. There's still a, a critical mass out there, but we've got to be strategic, smart, activated. We've got, we've got money. We've got the narrative. We just have to have the leadership. And that's, that's what so I think you we're- you think that that's what's
1: missing? You think that it's just leadership? Dude, that's the only thing that's missing?
2: Not the only thing, but I think it's the key thing. I, okay. I think we have leadership and and be able to say we need a sustained multimedia campaign to the mainstream, and and it's got to be at scale that makes a difference. And when I say Super Bowl ad, I, I'm not being rhetorical. Where are our Super Bowl ads? Johnny oh, Morris, yeah, Johnny Morris at Bass Pro Shops just pulled one in this year. There was a Bass Pro ad in the Super Bowl. Now, it was soft and, and feel, feel good about the outdoors, et cetera. That's fine. At least he's making an attempt there, but we'll engage. We've got to be proactive. We, we have to go after our enemies as well. Not just stand back and try and defend, but we need to go after them for the frauds that they are. What is it they're doing for wildlife? What exactly are they doing to save animals in Africa? Oh, you mean what they're doing is actually hurting Af- African animals and wildlife and people? Well, maybe we should tell that story. Maybe mm-hmm. we should decide their finances. Maybe we should understand that, that they're really just bilking blue hairs in urban America on, on emotion and really doing nothing about it. In the case of, of Humane Society of the United States, convicted of federal racketeering charges. Where is that story in the mainstream? Why aren't we helping tell that story? So anyway, yeah, we, we need to be a hell of a lot more aggressive. We have to be strategic, and we've got to sustain it. This isn't a let's place an ad in the Wall Street Journal and walk away. Our work's done. This has got to be got to be just part of our day to day exercise. And that's the federal level. We got to do it at the state level as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, funny
1: you say that. It's it's almost you almost have to think like why are we not thinking that way? And I'll give you an example. So blood origins, our global fingerprint is is just exploding. And I think people are, you know, they're seeing this, this narrative, this way of interacting with people, the way of pushing back against the narrative, the fight that we, you know, we put our shoulder behind that stone every single day. And unfortunately the stone is back at the bottom of the mountain every time we wake up. Um, Yeah. But like in Australia, I got sent a picture of a local newspaper. And in the local newspaper was an ad taken out by an anti-hunting organization, a animal rights organization, and it had a duck uh, over a cross and said, how long are we going to allow the slaughter of ducks to continue? And it was in lieu of the duck season coming in the state of Victoria, something that I would say 99% of Americans have never heard of, that, oh, there's a duck season in Victoria. Well, the Uh duck season in Victoria right now is under massive attack. They got reduced to two birds. The season got reduced from 95 days to 30 days. And it's all because of animal rights groups. And I looked at this ad and I said, why are we not proactively, like you said, putting ads out there? Why is hunting, you use the turtle analogy, I like to use the fact that hunting is in a closet and the closet door is closed and we like it closed and when the the closet door gets yanked open and we get punched in the nose by the animal rights we come flooding out and we fight 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 and then we retreat and we close the closet door again and say please leave us alone yeah we can't do that anymore we have to be proactive i think that there is a way to be proactive that isn't antagonizing i think that there's a way to be proactive that is attacking but smart, as you say, smart and strategic in the message that you're putting across. That is almost a blend of emotion and data, because let's be honest, that's why the other side wins because they play on people's emotions. Well, we can play on emotions too, because there's several things about us that that is very emotive. And so it's almost like, I agree with you, Chris, and I've been struggling with it every day. It's like, how? Like, how do we do it? How do we get the Super Bowl ad? How do we get the billboard that's on the major interstate coming into Los Angeles? How do we get, you know, I've, I have this fantasy of having a pool of money that, hey, somebody out of Australia comes in and says, oh, shit, let's put an ad in a local newspaper. Boom, let's do it. I've got the money. Let's go do it. You, you want to do it? Let's do it. Let's put an ad in the UK tabloids, you know, that kind of stuff, just like absolutely turn the tables and as you say, go on the offensive. But
2: well, I, I think to your point, yes, we absolutely should use emotion in our campaigns as well. You know, the old axiom in the communications business is E plus I equals C emotion plus information equals communication and and that's the baseline of how we we need to operate but it, i think getting to the funding side we've had a lot of discussions about this at, at the csf level and i've had it throughout the industry look we we generate hundreds of millions of dollars through excise taxes every year with gun and ammo sales particularly right now at pitman robertson uh we're generating extraordinary amounts of money so the money is there we need to say and, and when that was created Here's the other thing about the Pittman-Robertson Fund. It goes back to the 1930s, right? right. And back then, there was the genesis of, of Ducks Unlimited. There was the, kind of an early Boone and Crockett Club that, you know, wasn't a, a national play by any stretch, couldn't really do anything in terms of delivering conservation, etc. And that was about it. There, there really was no private sector conservation of consequence in the United States when that was created. And by the way, that was a self-imposed excise tax. Hunters and anglers, anglers on the Dingle-Johnson side, hunters on the Pittman-Robertson side said, we gotta do this, we want to be taxed. We want that money to go to the states to create habitat, et cetera. And again, there was no private sector delivery of that. And now there is. Now you've got fully fledged Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfall, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, Turkey, NWTF, you've got all these conservation organizations, in my opinion, that can now deliver significantly on all sorts of conservation efforts in this country. Why shouldn't they qualify for direct funds from Mm Pittman-Robertson? Why shouldn't they, as people who, as organizations that generate private sector money, qualify for a match from the Pittman-Robertson pool? We are de facto sending it to the states in an antiquated model. Does anybody really think charging a federal tax, sending it to Washington, then shipping that to the states is the most efficient way to distribute and disperse tax dollars? I don't like so. So if we can give some of that money in a qualified way to the 501 c 3 nonprofit conservation organizations, the Camel Coalition, the people that support those, those conservation organizations, I'm sure, would be 99% in favor of doing that. So I think we need legislation that says, guess what? We'll keep the Pittman-Robertson tax, but these conservation groups, if they raise money, qualify for matching funds up to a certain degree, let them start privatizing conservation on scale in America. And let's get away from state bureaucrats, state employees, and many of them are terrific wonderful the good ones will be absorbed by these nonprofit, private sector conservation groups and to me that's the way forward because if we're going to send this money to the states state agencies and say we want you to save our ass we're doomed Mm. we're done Mm. the state agencies are not built to do that they don't have the capacity they don't have the vision to do it and frankly many of them look at hunters and anglers as as a problem rather than a customer and until that changes until they view us as customers we're going to be at odds in many ways and and we are right now in many states fortunately i live in a, a good state colorado we have a very proactive hug a hunter campaign where they're they're putting ads out in the mainstream you know state to television stations radio stations talking about all that hunters do for all conservation for all species beyond target species. So anyway, that that's my big concern. I think, I think we have, we have relied on state agencies, looked at them as somehow they're going to save this category. Let me tell you, my friends, that isn't going to be the case. If that's what we're hoping for, we're done. And, and I'll keep okay. I sent people to the International Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies because I wanted to see what was being presented right at this big conference, annual conference. And again, this is all the state agencies. It's many of the NGOs. It's the federal agencies as well. It's really all the people involved in managing wildlife in the United States that attend this thing. And, and the theme that came out of that was, hunters are going away. We have got to find new revenue streams. We have got to find new money. It wasn't, how do we save hunting our revenue stream? It was, their toast we've got to find new streams of revenue let's see if we can get tax dollars general tax dollars and 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 no real reverence or ownership to save the lifestyle whatsoever and i'm thinking to myself all right we're pumping tax dollars we're hunting license dollars you know, other tax dollars in these states but then excise tax money going to washington coming back to them and and that's what we're getting you know we're not getting them they're not seeing us as customers in most cases they're seeing us as People to be managed their problems we got to throw more gabe Mordens at them because deer are being poached or or whatever you know and and that's a that's a dichotomy that the industry needs to figure out and i did see i did see johnny morris's head of conservation kind of address several of these state agency guys and basically put them on notice look we want to see what you're doing to grow these ranks we're spending a lot of money with these state agencies through excise taxes direct contributions And and where's the plan? Where's the measurement of your success? Right? Should we keep doing this if if we're not gonna see results? Mm -hmm. I think and I think we're on that cusp right now. Mm -hmm. I think you've got enough of the industry going, I don't I don't wanna keep throwing money at the states. There's gotta be a new way forward. There's gotta Mm -hmm. be a better way. Mm -hmm. And we've got hundreds of millions of dollars. So when I hear, you know, we're we're up against the animal rights groups, they pale in comparison to what we can generate. Mm -hmm. We just have the leadership, the vision and the will to to execute a sustained strategy and plan. Why wouldn't we do that? Mm -hmm. I,
1: I like the plan. I agree with some elements of it. I'll disagree with a couple of elements of it. I agree that I think that the private organizations, uh, I like the idea of them being able to match up with Pittman Robertson Act monies. And the qualification that came into my mind as you were speaking was the PR media storytelling side of the equation that is the most important in terms of telling our story. I think the state agencies have, and where I disagree with you is I think the state agencies do have a role to play. Um, and yes, they don't traditionally think of hunters as their customers. And I was a professor in a wildlife fisheries department that taught future resource biologists. And I didn't, take, I didn't teach about customers either. I taught about them managing my resources so that the resources were there for my kids and my grandkids one day, which is what the biologist's job is on the ground. And the game warden's job is to make sure that yahoos aren't poaching deer, that they're not supposed to be poaching. So I think that there is a place for state agencies. But I definitely, I totally agree with the idea of using a DU, an NWTF, a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, as almost a hip to hip partner on the things that state agencies don't typically do very well, which is the storytelling side, the consequence telling side, the recruitment side of hunting and using PR dollars to potentially help that effort. I'm a thousand percent in agreement with you.
2: Well, and I think, and I just literally had this conversation with a group about a week ago. When you look at, at the creative, you know, you want to, you wanna spend, you're to, so you've got 50 states that have access to Pittman-Robertson funds, right? And, and they've gotta find some matches and they qualify for the funds, et cetera. But, but what you're gonna have is, is a bunch of states trying to create their own creative around hunting, try and create their own narrative and, and take that out, which is incredibly inefficient. Mm-hmm. As an industry, we should be saying, let's have a really great agency that can develop the creative that makes perfect sense, that really strikes a chord, that's, that's market tested, et cetera, we know it's gonna work, and then distribute that to the state agencies and let them push that out to their individual states. But but the inefficiency of taking federal money, shipping it to the states, and saying, boom, you've got a pet project somewhere in the western slope of Colorado, you wanna put a billboard up, well, that's great, But but are we moving the needle here? Do we really have a mm-hmm. sense of, of the point on the horizon to which we're trying to get mm-hmm. uh, no i don't think we do so it's an ad hoc deal and and we have people that really don't understand the cultural war and the state agencies in my my background my experience with many of them not all of them some of them are really terrific um, but many of them just aren't they just aren't built that way they came from conservation programs biology dep- departments School I went to, University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, largest undergrad college mm-hmm. of, in America, and uh, great biologists come out of there, foresters, fisheries people, but not great communicators typically. And yeah. they're, they're not that, and that's, that's a different discipline. So to your point, you know, they're good at, at certain things, those are their roles, um, as long as they're efficient, as long as is we're gonna be spending and we can measure success, great let's continue that. But but to just keep pouring money at, at systems and processes in this North American model, you know, yeah, okay, let's say the North American model is the best model in the world. That isn't saying much, because there isn't shit for a good model around the world. The North American model is the best one out there. And by the way, it's the American model, um, not the North American model. You know, I love Shane Mahoney, but he tried to coin that early on. And, you know we're all scratching our heads going well what exactly did the canadians do in this deal other than take our money and uh anyway we'll, we'll leave that as it is that's a fun gig i always get with with shane but anyway we can improve that model there is no perfect model right so let's think about how to make it better let's not celebrate we're wonderful it's all great as the sink the ship is sinking let's figure out how we can make it better let's fine tune let's look at pitman robertson let's look at dj and say how do we how don't we make sure when we're spending all this money that we're getting something for it right there's an roi we can measure isn't that a novel idea you know we've we've had extraordinary amounts of pittman robertson funds over the last decade and and it's and yet we're losing hunters we're losing ranks we're losing the battle how is that you know mm-hmm. it's it's we're not efficient at all we don't have a strategy mm-hmm. we're doing what we've always done and we're hoping For different results that's that's the classic definition right so yeah it's it's for a guy like me who's lived in this category forever and has been communicating in this category forever talked to everybody you know served done tons of pro bono work for all sorts of conservation groups served on their boards given thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars to conservation organizations i get frustrated when i when i see inertia and i i see people not recognizing the realities that they're faced with. And I, and I think as a category, we're kind of there. And and I think there's enough frustration now. And I see it particularly at the manufacturer level because they're looking at the nonprofit conservation groups going, this is why we give you money. We're expecting you to push back. We're expecting you to create a better atmosphere for our customers to buy more products. So they're pushing back on these conservation groups. I think they've got to own it. You know, They've got to step up and
1: uh and be part of that solution well it's certainly um certainly a solution that we think about every single day and yep. this conversation is it, it it's almost a glimpse into the wrestling that happens in my mind every single day and chris i, I really appreciate the candidness of this conversation and uh, as i said to you in the beginning i really enjoy an iron sharpening iron type conversation. So do I. we certainly had one today and um yeah i look forward to you know maybe sharpening some steel in terms of thoughts and and because there's certainly room right now the 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 atmosphere is ripe for something new uh there's the atmosphere is ripe for a different tact and yes uh, there's her- you know and so yeah i just one I appreciate, I know it took us a while to get this locked down and uh, I'm glad well, that it finally on did.
2: The, let, let's get you on the Sporting Classics podcast and we'll continue the dialogue. This, this was fun.
1: Yes, sir. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it. My whiskey is empty. I don't know what you were drinking out <laughs> of your red Solo cup.
2: Just, just water for now. It's about <laughs> to. <laughs>
1: well, I appreciate you, Chris. Thank you so much. All right.
2: Thank you. Cheers. Well, that's
1: it for today. I appreciate you listening.